Welcome to the Nun Report, bringing your regular dose of truth, freedom, and weirdness with your host, Dan Nunn. Thanks for tuning into this week's guest edition of the Nun Report. Today, we sit down with current Washington State Representative for the 19th District, where he has served since 2016 defending conservative ideals, including education, taxpayer rights, property rights, gun rights, and more. Today, we'll hit on all of that. He's currently running for Washington State Republican Chair to bring a much-needed change to the party in Washington. Let's get right to it. Welcome to the show, Common Sense Conservative and Washington State Republican Chair candidate, Representative Jim Walsh. Jim, thanks for coming on today and sharing some of your valuable time. Hey, that was a great intro, right? Um, we had uh, some technical difficulties at the beginning, and unfortunately, it was during uh, Jim Walsh's introduction while he was giving you some background on himself and whatnot. Anyway, he's from Aberdeen, Washington. I'm going to give you a quick uh, one, two, three of it. Um, he's from Aberdeen, Washington. He ran when he realized that uh, nobody else in his 19th district out there in Washington State would. And so he went ahead and took the bull by the horn. He won. And and he's been there since 2016. I, uh, he's uh, he, he kind of made his, his business world. He's an entrepreneur. He's a business person. He owns a publishing company that does technical manuals and training manuals and that sort of thing. And so that's kind of his background. And he's you're going to come in as we start this show. You're going to come in in the middle tail end of, of how he was introducing himself and what was going on. Again, I apologize. There were some technical difficulties. They were unavoidable. And when you kind of have your uh, own one-man show like I do, or as I call it sometimes, a one-dan show, then those things are inevitably going to happen from time to time. Anyway, hey, enjoy the show. It's good. It's long. Watch it. It's worthwhile. There's a lot of meat and potatoes in there, okay? There's no... Um, it's not going to be flashy and glammy and emotional. It's going to be very in your face, very meat and potatoes, very, um, very good stuff. So make sure you, you watch it through. I think that Jim brought up a lot of good points and, um, and I enjoyed the time with him. He's a good guy. Anyway, Hey, check it out. Completed in the last year or two. And, uh, our district is completely red. Now it is, uh, represented not just by, Republicans in Olympia, but by conservative Republicans. And uh, and as I say, I mean, people are not Democrat or Republican. People are people. And the people in my part of the state are conservatives. And uh, they've realized that at least at this point in time, Republicans represent their values better than the other guys do. And uh, yeah. our, our local electeds, our county County commissioners and our local mayors and uh, and now our legislators are all pretty conservative people out here now. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So when you so now you've been so it's twenty twenty three now. So um, you've been in the bowels of of Olympia here for a few years, and um, and I think you've saw. I mean, obviously you've seen what the rest of us have seen, and that's that the state Republican Party has some real issues on on direction and. Um, uh, actually, you know, balance and, and support for, for, I think, candidates that represent more the Republican Party. And um, so now you're now you're running for Washington State Republican Party chair. Uh, how that, how does I, I guess how does that work? Um, you know, what is that and, and what sort of uh, directional and, uh, you know, cultural changes can you make from that position? I mean, what effect can you have there? Uh, maybe a lot of people don't even, I'm not even sure if I know what it is. 
<laughs> no, uh, a lot of people don't know what it is. Um, the, uh, the, the state party chair in Washington is elected it's by the state committee uh, of each of the political parties. The mechanics are basically the same for uh, for all political parties. Um, so it's not a public election. The uh, the state committee of each of the parties, the structures are a little different, but the basics are the same, uh, is a group of about 120 people representing uh, counties and legislative districts, so local areas of the state. And uh, they go uh, to quarterly meetings where they decide basically a lot of mechanical elements of what the political parties in Washington do. A lot of it has to do with, frankly, money, with fundraising and moving money through the party channels to candidates, to uh, committees, to support candidates and other political Mm -hmm. entities. Um, But the state party also uh, does do uh, basically messaging, marketing for for candidates, support of Mm -hmm. political candidates at all levels, uh, uh, from the presidential elections to the governor to legislative positions on down to local elections even. Um, And uh, so it's partly fundraising, it's partly money flow to support campaigns, but it's partly uh, ideas. It's partly marketing, you could say. Uh, Branding the party and then the, the candidates and politicians who choose to associate with the party uh, with ideas, what they stand for and generally what they what they want to do in public policy. So it's a bully pulpit and it's a and it's also a, a funding mechanism. The, uh, the elections for uh, party chairs usually happen every two years, roughly in line with like congressional and legislative mm-hmm. elections a little bit after. So they're not in November. They're usually in January of the uh, year following a, an election in November. Um, uh, what happened with the Republican Party here in Washington is that the current chair, a fellow named uh, Caleb Heimlich, who's been in there for about five years, uh, basically got a, another job offer. I mean, it's a job being a, a yeah. party chair. Yep. And uh, uh, a great opportunity for him and for his family. And he couldn't, couldn't pass it up. So he's leaving in the middle of a term for, for the state oh, party chair. Okay. And, uh, and then there's a, a, a special election by the, uh, the committee. As I say, about 120 people representing uh, the counties all around the, the state of Washington. And uh, the, that group, that committee, state committee, will elect a new state party chair. Uh, okay. I am, I'm currently a legislator, and I am going to try to balance both jobs. The, okay, the legis- that was one of my questions. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Well, the, the legislature in Washington State is technically a part-time gig. It is uh, we we have legislative sessions that last about six months, really a little less than six months, uh, and and or, or shorter. Uh, in uh, even-numbered years, the the legislative sessions in Olympia are are really about two months. They're very short. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's a full-time job, but it is technically a part-time job. If you do it right, it's a full-time job. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, but uh, we've had, uh, in our state's history, we've had sitting legislators be uh, state party chairs before. It, it, there's some precedent for that. It, okay. it doesn't usually happen, but I think at this point in time, for the Republicans in Washington, 
who frankly have been down for a long time and we haven't been on a winning streak in a while here. Um, I think it makes sense that a uh, legislator uh, will step in and, and uh, be the party chair. Frankly, I'm, I'm a guy who knows how to win elections in historically uh, Democrat areas. And I, I think uh, bringing that to the state party will help, uh, help the party win more. I, I think the party, the Republican party in Washington has been kind of, trying to manage the decline for a couple mm-hmm. of decades. And I think we need to change an attitude and, and really focus on winning elections. So, uh, so we'll see. Well, how I, it think, I think because you're, you're plugged into the legislature as a representative and you're there on the ground, you, you've got, uh, you've got more of the pulse of what's, what's going on that that would definitely be a benefit in breathing some fresh air and, and perhaps some boldness and, and uh, proactive steps into the uh, into the Republican Party at a state level, um, just because you 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 got your feet on the ground too. You're you're there in the pits every every session. Like you said, it's a you know legislative session. We're going to talk about that in a little bit because we had a pretty disastrous one this last time around. That's true. Um, so one of the things I that I see that you know I always take a look. You know I, we we talked a little bit last week, but we um we didn't, I didn't get a chance to dive in. But I looked around and you know you you're big on education. Like a lot of people, you know, we, we look at this state and we go, man, what is going on? We keep dumping more and more money into this. They keep raising our taxes. They keep raising our property taxes. They, now I don't have a problem paying taxes to support education and to support the, the public facet of that. But it's so, it seems like it's extremely top heavy. We have some of the lowest scores in the country as far as our test scores go even though we have some of the highest spending per capita. And um, I, I don't know, I don't know what, how, how do you, how do you fix that? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a big issue. Uh, is. And you're right. I mean, you know, K-12 education or what the state constitution calls basic education is not a partisan issue. I mean, conservatives, liberals, yeah. progressives, radicals, whatever, whoever you are, people generally agree it's one of the things that government should do and, and try to do well. Um, uh, and we've screwed it up. Uh, those, those proficiency scores, what, whatever the metric is, and we've, we've changed our testing systems several times in the yes. last decade here in Washington because, and that's an attempt to try to obscure and hide the fact that scores are falling. And it's a new thing. I mean, 20 years ago, Washington State's K-12 uh, performance, education performance, was among the highest in the country. Our test scores mm-hmm. were at the top of the heap. And just in the last 15 years, a little bit less than 20 years, they've started to decline to where now they are, they're not the bottom, but they're close to the bottom in the United States. And as you said, I mean, if you break out our numbers here in Washington, we spend uh, on average about 18000 bucks per kid per school year on K-12 education. And that's high. That's higher than most states. Yeah. And for that, we get proficiency testing that is in the bottom third, bottom quarter, really, of, uh, of the test scores around the country. That's a bad deal. And uh, we got there because we've forgotten who the K-12 education system, school system, is supposed to serve. It's supposed to serve kids. And it's gotten screwed up to where there are many layers of bureaucracy in our K-12 education system. And those bureaucrats think that the system is supposed to serve them. 
that you yeah. know that it's a, basically it's a giant jobs program uh and then they've lost their track they, they've forgotten they're there to serve kids to give kids a, a good education and and you know they become very careerist they become very current credential focused it's no secret that the the public school system in washington has become really fixated on getting kids to university college and not giving them a good general education. And I, I was talking with a, a guy who uh, is an IBW electrician and works in their, uh, their apprentice program, a very, actually a very good system. And uh, he was saying that, you know, they get kids out of high school or in some mm-hmm. cases out of college. And uh, he was complaining to me that these kids coming into their apprentice program uh, don't know geometry at all. And if you're going to be an electrician, part of the apprentice program is bending pipe. It's, yeah. it's bending conduit pipe to, to wire places. And he said, yeah. these kids, they can't do 30 degree angles. They don't know what 30 degrees means when they're bending pipe and they have to teach them geometry. So they understand how to make pipe bend, right? So it connects to each other and they can run wire places. And, and, and that's tragic. That's tragic, Dan. I mean, yeah. that's what you- kind of education kids need to know do you think part of that is the amount of time and and energy that is put on social issues not just in society as a whole but also in our education system and and it depends on the school district obviously it depends on the makeup of that school and the the, the pta that's involved in that school and all of that um you know that's a given but it seems like a lot of schools and especially the the part that makes the news a lot um is the fact that you know we're teaching kids how well you know if you don't like who you are you can just become somebody else and um you know we need to have equity and we need to accept and this and those are important things i'm not saying they're not but is the 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 classroom really the place where those things ought to be taught because these are historically uh, parental duties and um you know generational duties and cultural duties not the duty of the state funded school system to teach your children how to think on a social level what do you think of that it's the corruption of the system. Uh, there's no doubt that these bureaucrats uh, in the system, and, and let's back up and talk about how we structure our school system in this state. Um, 295 school districts around the state of Washington, uh, local elected school board members. So the people in those areas elect the school board members, usually five, sometimes more, uh, who uh, make policy decisions, decide what to focus on who to hire, what to do at the school district mm-hmm. locally. Uh, traditionally, this state, as most states, puts a lot of authority in those local elected school districts. I mean, being a school board member has traditionally been a, an important position. I mean, it, it's not as glamorous as being in Congress or something, but it, there's a lot of power in it. There's a lot of responsibility in it, and that's a good thing. Uh, the drift in the last 20 years or so has been to take that decision-making authority away from the locally elected school boards and migrate it up into the bureaucracy at the state level. Uh, the state agency that is oversees K-12 schools in Washington is the uh, Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction, OSPI. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the su- state superintendent is an elected position. It's elected on the same cycle as the governor, a uh, four-year term. Uh, it is a nonpartisan position. So people who run for it do not claim Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Green or any political affiliation. They are independents. And that's okay. That's good. But it has 
had a, a bit of a confusing effect in that people don't really know who they're voting for. It's one of those, it's kind of like judge elections. People it's don't hard to research vote. somebody that has no platform or, you know, their belief system or even, you know, where they come from, right? Or their That's background. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And and the last several superintendents, elected superintendents at the state level, have been very left-wing, frankly. They've been very progressive. I mean, I don't even think progressive is the right word. They're, they're very left-wing. And they have pushed very left-wing agendas. And that includes this migration of decision-making, policy-making authority away from the local school boards and into the OSPI, the state agency, the state bureaucracy. And uh, in between the 295 school districts and the state office of OSPI, there's a middle level of bureaucracy called education service districts, ESDs. And they're kind of like super school districts. Each ESD has something like a dozen, sometimes more school districts in its membership. And a lot of the mechanism of pulling decision-making authority away from the locally elected school boards pulls it into these ESDs. And then the last couple of decades, the ESDs have grown in power and there's no public election for the bureaucrats at the ESDs. Which means there's no accountability, really. Really, there's no. But there's a ton of money that flows from the state, from OSPI into these ESDs. And uh, the ESDs are very aggressive at pushing policy. They tell school districts what they can and can't do. They use a lot of kind of threatening rhetoric, telling school board directors, local school board members, well, you could be held personally liable if you do X or Y or Z, if you don't comply with the law. And Mm -hmm. if you peel that onion back a little bit and say to the ESDs, well, wait a minute, what law does the local uh, school board have to follow? They'll acknowledge, well, it's not really law. It's 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 our guidelines. If you don't follow our guidelines, you could be personally sued. And that's technically true. But most school boards carry insurance for their members. And, uh, and, and if there's trouble like that, if the school board does something that really is bad and leads to a lawsuit or some sort of liability issue, uh, the, the board members are usually covered for their actions if they're made in good faith and they're not negligent, as as anybody on a or in an organization, a board of directors, director and officer yes. coverage uh, usually has. So, but but the uh, the bureaucrats are very intimidating, and they they basically browbeat the locally elected school boards into pushing policy that has nothing to do with learning geometry for bending pipe for electrical conduit. Uh, They push a lot of social and emotional learning. That's the current buzzword, S-E-L, social and emotional learning. They push a lot of uh, the comprehensive sex education, which has uh, actually become law in this state. And uh, and they push things like critical race theory, uh, although they're very kind of legalistic, these bureaucrats, when they talk about critical race theory. Right. They will tell you, well, we don't teach that in our schools here. Gives them deniability, you know? Yeah, it's it's kind of a lawyerly answer. I mean, yes, there's no mandate to teach critical race theory in schools in the state of Washington, but there is a lot of encouragement, especially at the professional education level, 
that teachers are indoctrinated with critical race theory and, uh, and inevitably will, will translate that into some classroom action. So they play a lot of games and they push these social agendas uh, where what parents want, taxpayers want, is kids to get better at reading, better at writing, better at math, basic math, yeah. better at hard sciences, you know, biology, chemistry, physics, the, the core stuff. And yeah. less focus on social issues and sexuality and and uh, social and emotional learning. Yeah, you know, I'm really that concerns me because my my, my children, my kids are all grown. Uh, we we raised five of them, and um, it, it's they're out of that that system now, and they're doing well on their own. But uh, I'm concerned about you know we're pumping out a couple of generations here of of kids that you told the story about your your. Uh, you know, your union friend who they couldn't get apprentices that even knew how how to how to do calculus, basic, basic calculations. How many degrees are there in a circle? I don't know. Well, we need to do a 30 degree bend. Um, I mean, that's that's scary man, because we're, we're competing against. Uh, and this is happening not just in Washington state. Unfortunately, it's happening in a lot of states and um, it's affecting a large percentage of our population. We're going to have to compete against China primarily in the near term that you can see as a as a as a economic powerhouse of the world and um, a country to which we've become very reliant on um, too much. So in my opinion, but uh, that's a different story altogether. Uh, school choice. I, I, I recently had uh, semi bird on the show and we talked about, he's a big proponent of school choice and vouchers and, and private schools, public schools, you know, whatever, basically here's your, uh, here's your salad bar of education options and you get to choose what you want. Um, Obviously, there's funding issues with that and different things that, that go along with that idea. I support it personally in in general as an idea, as as uh, you know, a freedom, a libertarian conservative that I am. So, um, where do you stand on that? Do you th- is that how do you put that together if you're for it? And even if you're not for it, how would that work? Well, I mean, I've run the bill the last four or five years at Olympia every session to start. K-12 education choice in the state Um, for reasons that are technical and also traditional. We don't call it a voucher system in Washington, but we would call it uh, as they do in some West coast States in the United States, uh, basically an opportunity scholarship or an education scholarship system. Uh, What it would be is a system where in families would be able to use a scholarship account uh, not, we don't call it a voucher, but it is like a voucher. Um, right. and, uh, they'd be able to take that, that, that account would be filled with a, a, a certain amount of money. As I mentioned earlier, we, we spend on average in Washington state, $18,000 per year per child in our K-12 system. Um, the, the, the education scholarship account would have a little less than that. Um, we tried a version that would have 10,000. We tried a version that would have 15,000, uh, and uh, that money would be available uh, in a chit, in a, in a, you know, a, 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 a basically a, a, a non-voucher voucher. I mean, right. a, a, a device that, that the family can use and bring that money to whichever school uh, it would choose uh, to put their child. Um, and that could be a, a public school. It could be a public school in the district next to where the family lives. Uh, right. It could be another public school. It could be a private school. It'd be a Catholic school. It could be a Christian school. It could be a, a, a Muslim school. It could be any kind of school. 
Uh, it could be homeschooling. Uh, and and uh, the money could be used to, you know, buy curriculum, buy textbooks for a homeschooling program. Uh, the, the family would have the broadest range of choices how to use that money. The, uh, because the amount would be a little less than is currently apportioned to uh, students in the public school systems, the school district would actually get to keep some of the money currently mm-hmm. budgeted for each child. Makes so sense. it would be kind of a win-win. I mean, the, uh, the, the school district would be able to concentrate its resources uh, on those kids who are enrolled in its schools and then actually end up with a little more per student uh, as a result of the system. And uh, uh, so it, it's structured in a way that makes sense. It is absolutely like sunlight to vampires for most of the progressive legislators in Olympia. Why? Uh, Control? Because they, they, believe, they believe that school choice is destructive of the public school system. That is not true, but they are ideologically driven and they drink the Kool-Aid, basically. They yeah. will not consider school choice. Uh, it's similar to the debates around charter schools in this state. Yeah. Uh, we have had charter schools in the past, but currently the legislative majorities in Olympia can't stand charter schools. And remember, charter schools are public schools that are operated kind of like private schools in that they are operated outside of that OSPI ESD structure that we described. My uh, kids went to one here in Marysville for uh, middle school. So, yeah. Yeah. So they are funded like public schools, but they are outside of the bureaucratic system. Now, they still have to be credentialed and reviewed and made sure that they they perform uh, effectively. Um, But they're able to operate more nimbly and without so many layers of bureaucratic oversight. And generally, charter schools outperform standard public schools in terms of those testing scores and other metrics. Well, the, the majorities right now in Olympia don't like charter schools. And even though they do exist in our state, they've frozen that program. So it, effectively, there can't be new charter schools. And they're trying to play games with the funding to try to put the squeeze on the handful of charter schools that exist. Is there a school is there a, allow those schools to thrive? Is there a federal component to this? I mean, can they deny funding at a certain level because we know now i mean the people in dc that are in control right now are absolutely against any sort of school choice because after all the children belong to them not to the parents so um is there is there a is there some sort of component of that where the federal government can tell the state you know what if you allow this in your state um we're going to hold you hostage and you're not going to get our money you're not going to get a certain portion of is that does that exist It does. It's sort of like what I was describing with the bureaucrats at the state level. The federal bureaucrats do a lot of huffing and puffing and basically intimidation. Um, And they can gum up the system for federal money that flows through to schools. But the truth is, ultimately, they can't withhold that money. Uh, But there's a lot of kind of intimidation and and political posturing around issues like that. We see it's what it is. The current... uh, school superintendent uh, that OSPI elected OSPI head right now does it all the time. He writes these memoranda threatening to withhold money from school districts that don't obey. He's literally used the word obey in some of these memos and he can't do that. I mean, if, if he were to actually withhold that money, uh, he would be breaking the law and, and he knows he would be. And so it's, it's intimidation. It's huffing and puffing. Uh, 
but and, and unfortunately, it's effective in some cases, but it's not the law. It's not following right. the law. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, um, so the education, yeah, it's a big, that's a big component. I mean, and, and also cultural and societal issues, accountability, uh, consequences for actions, all the things that children see that people don't have anymore. Um, so they just think they can do whatever they want in school too. You see a lot of that. Um, you see kids getting passed who didn't actually meet standards or requirements, but they're getting passed anyway. Uh, right. Used to be graduation, for- rates. Gra- graduation rates are an indicator. They're a metric, but they're not the most important metric. It's, mm-hmm. it's what do kids know when they get out of high school? And I didn't graduate they- from high school. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs didn't, you know, there's, yeah. it's not necessarily for everybody. So and it's, what do you know? I mean, I don't yeah. care whether you have the diploma or not. What, you know, can you bend that pipe 30 degrees? Can you read, uh, a candidate statement in an election yeah. cycle, you know, can you function? And the trouble yeah. is we've got kids who are struggling to function at, at a basic kind of life level. And, uh, and they're, you know, they don't need the social and emotional coaching as much as they need to learn how to, to read. Can you read yeah. a, an instruction manual? Can you, can you read a Shakespeare play? Can you, can you function as a person should function in life? Well, and no, I, because they're, they're written in cursive and they don't study that anymore. So <laughs> they're not even going to be able to read the original declaration of independence pretty soon. That's poor. Uh, definitely, the, the bureaucrats definitely don't want that. And there's no, and it's no secret. There is a political agenda here. It's to make kids dependent on systems for their livelihood, for their housing, for their food. Yeah. And, uh, and make them not question. I mean, uh, you know, you raised five kids, I raised five. It's tough when your kids are bright and, and independent, but that's what you want. Yeah. You know, you want your kids to be independent and strong. And I'm not sure some of these education crats really want kids to be bright and independent. They want them to be compliant and, uh, you know, good little cogs in a system. And yeah, this for sure. country it was not built by cogs. No. No, I, I hear you there. You're going to hear my dogs bark pretty soon when someone comes to our door because um, they, they go crazy. I have, I have two German shepherds. They're going to go. They go. You'll hear them once in a while in the background on my show and people comment on that. And, what kind of dogs do you have? You know, because they're loud. But uh, so Washington recently completed probably um, one of the most disastrous legislative sessions in my lifetime. And I've lived here my entire life. I'm, I'm 54. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I grew up down in Ballard in Seattle and um went to ballard high all of that and, and i've i've followed you know my dad was a reaganite um I, i've followed politics pretty closely since the early 80s because of that um and, and so i look at what happened in this in this session and the 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 taxes that were imposed the rights that were rescinded uh, from you know second amendment rights uh, property rights um all these new taxes going into play here it, it's just uh it's astounding how quickly it happened it's like wow uh six months ago you know we didn't have cap and trade even though that's an older law i get it and just went into effect um you know i was able to go purchase this you know a so-called uh assault rifle one of those scary looking guns it's just a rifle um and now i can't do that we're we have a new payroll tax that's come into play here uh the first state in the country to put one of those in i don't think jay Inslee has ever seen a tax he didn't like and um you know what what can we do is there are there are there things you can do i guess from you, you know assuming let, let's say you're, you're in the the chair 
of the, of the Republican Party. And uh, we, we covered this topic a little bit when we talked last week was it seems like our legislature, even the, some of the Republicans that are there are very kind of just go with the flow type of people. And these are your colleagues. Um, I get that. But there's a the system perpetuates itself to exist rather than serve. And how do we get back to a point where it serves the public instead of taking from the public? Well, that's a first principle. I mean, that's what the state and this country were built on, that government is meant to serve people. It's meant to be subordinate. People are the boss, you know, the, the, the state constitution is a brilliant document. I, I, people get sick of me saying this, but one of the reasons I love living here is our state constitution is one of the best state constitutions in the country. In many ways, it's superior to the federal constitution. And Article 1, Section 1, I mean, the beginning of the Washington state constitution says all political power is inherent in the people. And governments get their just powers from the consent of the governed. And those governments exist to protect and maintain individual rights. It's the first section of the yeah. state constitution. And, uh, and you know, we've forgotten that in Olympia. We have a, a culture in Olympia of people who think they know better. You know, uh, it's the fatal conceit. I mean, Frederick Hayek was writing about this stuff 70 years ago. Yes. I mean, it's this belief that we know better. We in the government know better. And we can raise your children better than you can. We can find you a job better than you can. We can we can take care of your health better than you can. We can do everything for you. It's and Marxism it, is what it is. It is. Ultimately, it is. I mean, and that's not funny. I mean, at, at, at its core, it is a direct, it is Marxist. And that is the, the seed, the kernel of the belief. And, and a lot of the people in the legislature and our elected officials here, Dan, they don't even know it. I mean, uh, let's be honest, Jay Inslee doesn't even understand the long effects of the policies that he supports. He he's not very bright. Is he, he's, I mean, he's an attorney, but he's, he doesn't seem very bright. I don't know. That's true. I, I don't believe he is. I don't think he understands the, the end direction of what he's doing. I think he and a lot of his supporters are, are shallow people who look for, I mean, we use the term virtue signaling. They look for kind of simple talking points in public policy and law rather than the deeper, longer outcomes of the policies they support. Case in point, this cap and trade system that's taking effect now and has driven our gas and diesel prices up over $5 a gallon. And it's not- Oh, don't stopping. worry. It's only going to cost pennies, that's is what we were told. Right? Right. Uh, you know, 100 pennies, I guess, is pennies, or 200 pennies is pennies. Um it's created a, a new tax in the state on gas and diesel. Now, the trick with the cap and trade system is uh, it's a tax, but it's not a retail sales tax. You're mm -hmm. already paying about 50 cents a gallon for gas or diesel in retail sales tax. At the One of the highest in the country. Already. And this cap and trade tax scheme is on top of that. It's not in place of it. And the, the cap and trade tax scheme is a wholesale tax. And this is important. I'll get to it in a second. Why? Okay. It's a tax charged by the refiners and high level, top level distributors of gas and diesel. It applies to propane, any carbon based energy fuel. And uh, it's a wholesale tax put on the, the producers and the, the top level distributors. 
and they pass that tax along to you at the pump. But it's not a sales tax at the pump. It's a pass along charged at the higher uh, level. Uh, so it adds currently about another 60 cents uh, a gallon in tax, state taxes on gas or diesel. And as I say, propane, other forms of energy. And, uh, and that's going up. It, it'll probably end up around a dollar a gallon in addition to the 50 cents per gallon of, of uh, sales tax you're paying. That's driving gas and diesel prices up. Uh, the mechanism for setting the price of this wholesale tax is a series of quarterly auctions at which the state's Department of Ecology, a bureaucratic agency, serves under the governor. The State Department of Ecology operates these auctions at which it sells these carbon credits. These are essentially permits to pollute. They are the ability of companies uh, to put carbon outputs uh-huh. into the into the environment, into the air. And uh, companies that produce carbon outputs, that make carbon outputs, have to buy these credits and, uh, and, and uh, they pay for them at an auction that happens quarterly. The, the pennies per gallon false statement that the governor made uh, about a year ago before the system took effect was that these auctions would only cost the producers a, a few, you know, a, a small amount of money, uh, pennies per gallon, it would translate into. And, uh, and he's wrong. Currently, the, the cost is about 60 cents per gallon. And it's, as I say, it's going up each quarter mm-hmm. when they do the auction. So that passes along to the individuals you have to pay. Uh, it passes along uh, for as a higher wholesale price of gas and diesel, which you have to pay at the pump. Now, why is it important that this new tax is a wholesale tax, not a retail tax? Because the 18th Amendment to the Washington State Constitution says that sales taxes on gas and diesel, the proceeds, have to be spent on road maintenance. And that's yeah. actually a good thing. I like the 18th Amendment. You know, the, you, you, you may not like paying that tax when you pump a tank full of gas, but you, at least you know your money is going into road and bridge maintenance, as it should. Um, the wholesale cap and trade tax doesn't uh, apply to the 18th Amendment. A loophole. Amendment. They found a way. And it ends <laughs> up getting spent on, you know, stuff that has nothing to do with our transportation infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It gets put into the general fund and can be spent on whatever cockamamie scheme Jay Inslee or other people come up with. And that is terrible. And, uh, and it was designed to get around the 18th Amendment's restriction on road and bridge maintenance. And, uh, and, and the, the least we need to do is change the cap and trade tax scheme so that it, it has to operate in the 18th Amendment and go to roads and bridges. Right. Uh, the most we need to do is just repeal it. Yeah, it's it's astounding to me that that these politicians they think they can increase costs on businesses and not think what they think the businesses are going to eat that they're not going to eat that man that's not how you stay in business especially I mean the energy business is not high margin to begin with they're they're making pennies you know and it, they, they they make money on volume so when you and people just don't understand that it's like the um, uh, you know, we can't have an income tax in the state either, but somehow they found a way to pervert that. And they finally got a liberal enough state Supreme Court to withhold it, to, to, to hold it up that now we can have a capital gains tax. As a small business person, this LLC, I file as a subchapter S, um, you know, this has devastating effects on, on business and employees and things like that. And they don't, 
did they, they live in a, a fantasy world where they think that um you know that there's no ripple effect and and there is there's a very real ripple effect right oh yeah and that the whole thing around the income tax is a debacle so uh yeah i mean they they live as i said they live by this shallow virtue signaling rhetoric and they their notion of private sector business is corporations 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 are evil we need to get rid of corporations of course they take political contributions from every corporation there is <laughs> All of the um, uh, but they you know it's a talking point corporations 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 the uh, the cap and trade is one example the 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 capital gains tax system that you uh, just mentioned is is another of this 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 shallow kind of frankly stupid approach to public policy and tax policy so yeah in our state uh, the state constitution pretty clearly says it's not that an income tax is unconstitutional you can do an income tax in washington but it says that all forms of taxation, including any income tax, would have to be uh, uniform across all types of taxed asset. Uniform right. is the term that the Constitution used. Basically, that means taxes in Washington state have to be flat taxes. So you could have an income tax in this state, but it would have to be flat. All people would pay the same amount, regardless of how much income they have. It would and never pass, like, though, right now. Yeah. I, I like flat taxes. I mean, if we're going to have taxes, they should be flat. Uh, it, it's simpler public policy, a simple tax structure, and it's equitable. It's just. Um, but that's not what the left wants. They want a, a graduated, uh, graduated uh, uh, income tax where people with more income pay a higher rate. That's the part that's unconstitutional. And right. a capital gains income tax is inherently graduated. Only yeah. people who have capital gains of more than a certain amount pay that tax People who have capital gains under that amount don't pay it. And the left argues that that's equitable. No, actually, that's not equitable because it's unconstitutional because it's not a uniform tax across all uh, classes of asset. Gotcha. And uh, the system in our state has long held that income is an asset. It, it's like a house. It's like a, 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 you know, a stamp collection. It's like anything you might have. It's an asset. And a mm -hmm. capital gains income tax is a tax on an asset. So... Uh, the state, the, the legislature passed this capital gains income tax. The governor greedily signed it very quickly. It did. It was contested in the courts, and it did go to the state Supreme Court, as you mentioned. And uh, the state Supreme Court held that a capital gains income tax is, in fact, not an income tax. It's kind of a nonsensical finding. And that what it is is it's an excise tax. Uh, mm -hmm. An excise tax is a tax on a transaction. Of course. And they made this sort of circular legalistic argument that income is a transaction and income is subject to an excise tax. Uh, we are the only state in the United States that has found this. Every other state that has a state income tax calls it an income tax. The federal government calls uh, a capital gains tax an income tax. Everybody else calls it an income tax. But our uh, our state Supreme Court, which is known for some screwball decisions, has says it's not an income tax. Well, um, and Bob, Fer Bob Ferguson gave <laughs> Bob yeah, Ferguson you know, gave it, the argument too, right? So yeah, he did. And 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 our state attorney general is really a, a piece of work. He uh, he makes some of the most convoluted arguments in court that you can imagine, and uh, and he's very uh, selective about his press releases and his publicity on, on cases he's involved in, his record in court is not that great. 
uh, but he certainly has a PR machine that makes people think he wins every case that he takes on. Uh, and uh, that just isn't true. He did win, if you call it that, this lawsuit about the capital gains income tax. Uh, but ultimately, I, the, it's an incredibly unpopular idea, this capital yeah. gains income tax. And ultimately, I think the people will overturn it, uh, but they'll probably have to do that by the initiative process. Yeah, and, and and that's something I wanted to talk about was the initiative process as well, because, you know, we have um, we do have that in, in our state. It's a great thing. Uh, um, and we have the, the referendum process as well, um, one that we have going on right now and um, w- which is hugely important, which I want to touch base on as well. But uh, as far as the the initiative process and it seems like um, I, I've, I've talked with with Tim Iman a lot. He's, you know, pros and cons. I mean, he has, he's done some great things. He's, he's done some kind of odd things, uh, but I think he has some good ideas and, and definitely he started in the right place. The initiative process though, it seems like the, you, the voters in Washington, it, they, they find a way around it. I mean, and, and the stadium comes to mind, RTA comes to mind, um, different things that the voters said, no, we don't want this or it Things were overturned via initiative process. The, uh, the car tabs thing, of course, which Tim is famous for, uh, is, is one. And man, now, but somehow they find a way to pervert it and subvert it and go around it. And they're, they're basically subverting the people's will of and the intention of the will, the initiative, the referendum or whatever. And, um, you know, other than voting these people out, I don't, I don't know how you fix that. Do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the, uh, there's no doubt that the establishment political structure in Olympia hates the initiative process, and they want to. They would get rid of it if they could, but it's constitutional, so it's difficult. You'd have yeah. to have a constitutional amendment to get rid of it. It's great. Um, uh, and so they find ways around it. The, the The state supreme court is notorious for finding, you know, supposed flaws and in initiatives and rejecting them for some technical issue with how mm-hmm. the initiative was drafted. And that's what they did with $30 car tabs. That It was absurd. The, the state attorney general, Mr. Ferguson, whose office actually writes the titles for initiatives, argued that the title on the $30 car tabs initiative was inherently confusing and people didn't understand what they were voting for. A preposterous argument that the state Supreme Court in that case did accept. Um, and uh, it was it was sort of interesting to watch kind of like something out of, uh, you know, 1984 or Franz Kafka or something. Uh-huh. The state attorney general arguing his own title was inherently confusing and misleading. Um, but uh, there you go. It, it, they, they'll find any ju- justification, any excuse they can to undo initiatives. Um, it is a good process. I mean, there are some arguments, philosophical arguments that there shouldn't be so many initiatives in, and that's reasonable. I mean, the initiative is supposed to be a kind of last uh, last line of defense in public policy. Uh, the trouble is the legislature has been so dysfunctional and so destructive of the good exactly. ends that it's become more important initiatives. And, and, and the legislature and the governor and the state attorney general have responded by just... Uh, dis- basically disparaging and dismissing the initiative process because it is the check and balance over their bad policies. Um, uh, You know, the the basic primer in our, in our state, there are referendums and there are initiatives referendums, different States use the terms differently in Washington. Referendums are the people's veto. 
They are very specific, tailored to overturning specific legislation passed in Olympia. Uh, initiatives are more proactive. They're not a veto. They are law. They're, they're the people's legislative process. So referendum in our state, referenda overturn. They're the people's veto. They overturn specific bills. Initiatives create new law, create new policy. Right. So one is kind of defensive and one is offensive. Uh, yeah, so-, so right now we have a, a referendum out that's would overturn Senate Bill 5599, yep. which is an anti-parents' rights bill uh, passed uh, on a partisan party line vote in Olympia and signed greedily by the governor uh, with his nervous shaking hand. And uh, basically the, the mechanics of it are, are convoluted and the rhetoric around it is very misleading. People say it's a transgender rights issue. It's not really, that's part of it. What it is mostly is a parental rights issue. In well, we've that- seen what happens when we give this government more control right here in Washington state. Um, they say, even, regardless of the intention of it or what they say, um, it, it is written and structured in such a way that taken to its extreme, you're talking about perfectly healthy households households that have regular family interactions, some of which don't always go good between parents and kids. Um, you know, hey, you know what? I'm sorry you think you're a girl, but you're actually not. Okay. Oh, wow. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go cry to the local shelter. And this shelter doesn't have to inform. I mean, imagine being a parent. And, and I don't think a lot of people around the country even maybe they do. This made national news for you know a split second of the news cycle. Right. But um right. it, it's I imagine your kid is gone and you're you're reaching out to law enforcement. You're reaching out to you're 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 scared to death. You're worried. I mean, yeah, maybe you had a family argument. Maybe there was a disagreement or something. Maybe a school counselor got involved and decided that they knew what was better for your kid than you did. And all of a sudden, your kid's gone. You don't know where they are. You're calling all over. They're not required to even tell you. And while they're in the shelter, while they're in the shelter, by the way, they can receive state affirming, uh, you know, gender affirming care from the state, right? The law enforcement and schools are prohibited. They're forbidden to tell the parent in that scenario where the child is. And remember, these are not abusive or neglectful parents. This but that's how they that's how they defined it, though, was they said it was abuse. That way they can do it. And that is false. People who say that this 5599 is to prevent uh, abuse and neglect of children, that is a lie. It does not yeah. require any establishment of abuse or neglect. We have existing law that handles abuse and defines it, sets up the process for dealing with parents who are abusive or neglectful. This is new. This is separate of that. There's no court adjudication. There's no CPS or DSHS decision. That There's no adjudication. There's no process for determining a child has been abused or neglected. This is absolutely undermining parental rights of custodial parents, parents who are good parents, who have custody of their child. If the parents are not, and the term used in that law, the bill now law, is adequately affirming. If the parent does not affirm the child's wishes, and we're talking about BS. (laughs) And, And I mean, I've raised kids. I mean, it's your duty as a parent sometimes to not affirm what your minor child wants to do. And uh, and the idea that the child can be hidden by the agencies of the state government from from a custodial parent, a good parent, because the parent 
in the eyes of the child or a state bureaucrat has not been adequately affirming of the child is madness. It is undermining parental discretion and family structure. And it's, it's entirely, it's entirely, it's, it's entirely subjective too, right? There, there's no, how do you make an objective standard on what's affirming and what's not? I mean, it, it basically is going to depend on, well, the state, which is what they want. And it, it, there is, you're right. There's no standard. There's no objective. Frankly, there's no subjective standard. There's no standard at all to it. Um, so referendum 101 would overturn this Senate bill 5599. How's and, it going? Uh, they, I've spoken with the organizers of, you know, the, the people running referendum 101, and they don't have enough signatures right now for it to qualify, but their modeling shows they will have enough by the deadline, which is at the end of July, uh, to, to qualify. July 31 then is the deadline for 101? Uh, a little bit sooner than that. I think it's the okay. 22nd is the deadline. So it's okay. coming up. Uh, but they are optimistic that as the signatures are coming in on the petitions, they will end up getting enough to qualify it. Then referendum 101 goes on the November of 2023 ballot. You'll see it on your general election ballot in November. And then you vote a reject 5599 on that ballot. And uh, we can overturn this anti-family, anti-parent law. It's a terrible, terrible law. Oh, we have to. I mean, it sounds like uh, the way it was written that even if, you know, if if it goes through courts for one reason or another, it seems like they always find a way to get it there. Um, That, you know, I don't know how, like you said, it's just not defined enough. They, They talk about defining initiatives. They can't even define their own laws, you know. And that um, is absolutely a game that the left plays in the state. You know, yeah. they, they, they hold up anything that is constitutional or for the people to this incredible scrutiny. It has to be just perfect. And then the laws they pass are sloppily written, you know, just a mess. They have to go back and fix them immediately because they're broken. Mm-hmm. It, it really is a, a terrible uh, manipulative system like that. So you're uh, you're out in Aberdeen. You're kind of in the, the I guess some, some would call it the sticks of um, um, Washington. Some would call it the home of uh, Kurt Cobain. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I, I appreciate that. I, that was kind of my musical era was the late eighties and early nineties. Um, and so you, you probably have a, you probably have some thoughts and feelings about firearms, I would imagine. Um, one of the things that we did, you know, did in this state, of course, even though that they're used in like hardly like zero percentage of the crime, I mean, that it, it are the scary looking, you know, those black rifles with the, with the stocks on them and the, and the you know, the pistol <laughs> stock and, or, or uh, uh, you know, handhold and all that. Um, AR-15s, I call them assault, assault rifles because they're scary, right? Um, is this, it's going through the courts. Um, do you think, and other states have the assault rifle ban too, and it's it's been upheld. Do you think it's going to be upheld here too? No, it's not. Uh, yes, some states have experimented with these bans. The federal government experimented with a ban in the 90s. They eventually uh, backed away from it, abandoned it at the federal level. Uh, it, the the so-called assault weapon ban you mentioned, it was House Bill 1240 that recently mm-hmm. passed, and the governor nervously signed it into law. Um, it is being tested in the courts, uh, but... What has changed in the last few years on this issue 
is the U.S. Supreme Court, not the state of Washington Supreme Court, but the U.S. D.C. Yes. issued a, a opinion uh, called uh, the Bruin decision. It was the New York State uh, Pistol and Rifle Association v. Bruin. Bruin was a, a state official in New York State. Uh, and the Bruin decision said that state laws cannot infringe or impair the foundational right to keep and bear arms, and specifically things like magazine bans or so-called assault weapon bans mm-hmm. are unconstitutional. The, the Bruin decision puts this plainly into the our federal law system, and uh, is designed specifically to prohibit and overturn uh, legislation like House Bill 1240, the so-called assault weapon ban here in in Washington State. Uh, We talk about poorly written law. House Bill 1240, the so-called assault weapon ban, is a mess. Its definition section of what constitutes a so-called assault weapon is clearly written by someone who doesn't know anything about firearms. I've read it. It, it, it's a mess. And it's uh, it's one of my pet peeves in badly written law are definition sections in law that combine non-exhaustive lists of things with conceptual definitions. And that's that's what House Bill 1240 has. When it defines what is a so-called assault weapon, it has a list of makes and models of specific firearms. And then it says, and also anything that matches this description. It's a mess. Um, you know, any any rifle that has a detachable magazine is illegal. <laughs> pretty much. I yeah. mean, and, and it, it, you know, if 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 you, for the sake of argument, if you want to define what is an assault weapon, generally what it is is it's a you know they are long barrel rifles of a certain caliber with a certain you know using ammunition that has a certain uh, velocity, and you know. Okay, I mean, I don't even like that concept, but that would at least be a concept. This law covers all kinds of other things, uh, mm-hmm. certain models of shotguns, as you mentioned, certain models of pistols. It's a mess, and 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 they're almost arrogant. The supporters of it, including the governor and the state attorney general, they're almost arrogant about the sloppiness and shoddiness of how these these bills are written. I think it's because they expect it to be overturned by the federal courts. Okay. because of this Bruin decision and other decisions. Um, the Bruin decision from the U.S. Supreme Court specifically prohibits state law like this so-called assault weapon ban. So it may take a while. It may have to push that. The cases may have to you know, go up the system at the federal level, yeah. get up to the, the appeals court level, or maybe even the U.S. Supreme Court. But I am certain that this thing will be overturned. And I think that the governor and the state attorney general know it. And that means well, they're just being cynical by pushing this. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have either they're either. Yeah. Or either that or they're so arrogant because they've been getting their way for so long. Um, hopefully we will have a new governor in place um, by then so that we don't have to, you know, maybe we can pass some different common sense laws and we can get a little bit of a backbone behind the uh, Republican party here in the state so that we can um, stand up to what's been uh thrust upon us for so long now 38 years it's been since we had a republican governor in this in this state that's when i look at that i'm like my god that's like two-thirds of my life i i don't even know you know and even in the last republican governor we have i mean you know it wasn't it wasn't anything astounding so um it it was we've we've got two people running for governor uh, it looks like this year so we're basically going to have a republican primary um 
Inslee, uh, King Inslee, as I like to call him since COVID, uh, he, you know, he took his King hat off his Burger King hat off and put it off to the side. Finally, you know, he was the first in and the last out. Of course we knew that's how it was going to be. Um, but, uh, we got two guys now, uh, you know, semi bird and, and Dave Reichard, um, you know, Reichard obviously has a ton of experience. He's a colleague of yours. You've served with him in Congress. Um, Semi also uh, has has experience uh, serving this country for for most of his life, although although in a different uh, capacity. Um, and and I and I like both of them, and I think they both bring something strong to the table. It's going to be fun to uh, watch them explore each other and um, bring out different ideas and thoughts. I think I think having more than one person involved is a good thing because I think it's going to create conversation and and debate. Um, and get a lot of different ideas out there, right? Um, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to ask you who you who you prefer, but maybe you can talk a little bit on both. I don't know if you know semi much, but you know you know Dave. And um, what does it mean? And do we have a chance to even um, get another Republican governor in this state after so long? And um, before I turn it over, one one thing I will say I really like about both these guys uh, is, is they're not. Um, they're not going to be charging into the race, waving a MAGA flag. Now, I'm a huge Trump supporter. I am Trump all the way. MAGA, that's me. Um, that's not going to win a statewide election in Washington state. No way. So you have two candidates that are not, you know, they're not, they haven't necessarily distanced themselves from that. They're definitely conservatives, but they're not, um, you know, that's not the front and center of their campaign. I like that in this state. How about you? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you're right about those two candidates. They're not, uh, they're conservatives. Uh, there, there'll be some pressure to say that Semi Bird is more conservative and Reichert is more moderate. That's kind of an oversimplification. Uh, I, I, I think they're both constitutionalists. I think they're both right of center. They're fairly conservative, but I don't think either of them is extreme. You're going to hear people screaming that they're extremists. They're not extremists. They're both in the mainstream of American political thought and, and Washington political thought, but on the conservative side. I think that the biggest difference between the two candidates, those two, is is more a matter of kind of tone and style. Uh, Byrd is like a preacher. I mean, he's very passionate. He's very, uh, very well-spoken. I mean, he's an orator in the classical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and Reichert is a little more laid back. He's more... Uh, like a West Coast type guy, you know, a little more soft spoken, but but I think that philosophically and politically, they're they're not as far apart as the media will probably try to portray them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, both good people. We'll just have to see which version uh, people like better. Uh, and and I'll say this: you're right. I mean the the book says that uh, iron sharpens iron, and you know, competition is good. It brings out yeah. the qualities and skills and people and businesses and and politicians. Um, the trouble we've had as Republicans in the state is we have in, in recent years kind of uh, been undisciplined in how we do our primaries and our election at the early stages. And, mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, the, the thing people say is the Republicans have been a circular firing squad in recent years here in Washington with uh, too many people running in, in kind of an unorganized, nonproductive way. They're and not- I, I think we can be better about that. Uh, one of the things that I think we're going to do that you'll see make a difference in coming up in the next election cycle, not this year's, 
in, in the odd numbered years in our state, we do local elections. So this year, you're seeing school boards and city councils and things like that. But for the next federal and state election cycle next year in 2024, uh, we are going to move the state's convention, this Republican Party convention, earlier in the year. Traditionally, it's been in midsummer. We're going to have the convention instead in the spring, probably sometime in, in April of 2024. At that convention, we will nominate, the delegates of the convention will nominate Republican candidates for statewide offices and federal congressional races. And that should, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a good nominating process. It's, it's the one we use anyway. We just haven't used it effectively because we do it too late in right. recent years. So it'll it'll clear the field out earlier, and I think there'll be less infighting and less damaging primaries, uh, and we'll have our house in order earlier in that election cycle, so we'll know in April of 2024, with some certainty, who our nominated candidates are for things right. like governor, for things like Congress. And, uh, and I think that will rationalize the process. It'll give the nominated candidates more time to raise money more time to get their messages out. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to be more effective. Can we win the governor's seat in 2024? I believe we can. The party needs to be better organized. It needs to get our, our nominated candidates out in front of people earlier in the election cycle. And, uh, and the party needs to be, frankly, a, a better at ground game. It's one of the things a political party can do is organize boots on the ground, canvassers, doorbellers, old-fashioned person-to-person politics. And our party, the Republican Party in the state, has not focused on that enough. Uh, It's meant to. It's talked about doing that. It hasn't done a good job of it. So we will focus the party more on that infrastructure, campaign infrastructure, organizing and building. The other guys, the other party, they're very good at it. And we need to basically take some... uh, take some lessons from how they do it to get uh, to a place where we can win. And we can, been, Dan, we can do it. I've been, I've been preaching it, man. I, I think Ferguson would be worse than Inslee. Um, I think he's more arrogant. He, he's probably a little bit smarter. Um, he definitely knows how he, he's got a silver tongue. You know, I, I think, um, you know, that, that's one of the things that I've really been, uh, been adamant about, about is that, you know, we, we can, do these things, but we've got to, we've got to play this by the same set of rules, man, that you can call the, 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 I call them extreme commie Democrats. You can call them whatever you want. Their ground game is on. They are, they have got it good. They circle their wagons. There's not as much infighting and they get behind their candidates of choice. And then they mobilize the masses of their base to get out there and get it done. It's, it's, uh, you got to respect the hustle. Um, you know, Jesse Kelly always says that uh, is, you know, respect the hustle, um, regardless of if you agree with it or not. And I do. And the Republican Party needs to as well, because if they don't um, figure that out and and get there and um, hopefully, you know, getting you in in a in an odd year for the uh, replacement of the chair. Um, hopefully that can help us help us get there, too. That's how we did it in my part of the state. We built a campaign structure that is uh, people. It's people-based. It does not rely on TV ads and radio ads. Now, we still do TV ads and radio ads, but the focus of my campaign structure has always been basically doorbelly, going and talking to people, 
who want to talk at their doorstep. And, uh, and there's a whole conservatives have been very nervous about doing that. And they're very, they, they're timid about getting out and talking to people and they shouldn't be our core values of individual rights of family as the building block of uh, our society mm-hmm. of the right to own property and defend your property, the right to expect excellence in our public education, not mediocrity and social engineering. These are basic things that are our issues. We win on issues, Dan. When we talk, yeah. if you take the R and the D away from topics, concepts, and present them to people, the people of the state support conservative, they support conservative law. And, uh, and we just have to do a better job of getting in front of people and reminding them of that. Yeah, well, it's it's a difference between making a, a you know logical ar- argument versus an emotional argument. The um, you know the Democrats are really good at, at tugging on people's heartstrings. Um, Patty Murray, uh, you know, I, I put something out on a tweet earlier today. You know, she's like, it, no matter what they do, they're trying to create someone to be the victim because if they can ha- if they can keep the victim the victimology mentality among their people, then they can control them, and um, it, it's. It's sad to watch. And, and I think people just get stuck. I mean, they're like zombies almost. They get stuck in this mode of, yeah, uh-huh, I'm going to do whatever the party says. And then nothing changes and they wonder why. I think I lost you. You still there, buddy? Yeah, we, we uh, I don't know if it's me or you, but we got a little uh, wonky. But I can see you now. Yeah. now. Yep, I got it now. You're kind of you're All kind right. of fading in and out. Maybe there's a glitch in the matrix. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, you've been now you're pixelated. You look like uh, you look like something out of the matrix right now. Yeah, that's how you were in, in past. I found this to be the platforms problem, not uh, not the internet connection. So, um, yeah. but I think we're back now. I think the audio was still there the whole time. And then when I usually when I play it back, everything is still there just fine too. So it's only you and I that experience the difficulty. Thank you. Uh, folks for hanging out with us and 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 going through that glitch with us because that was uh that's what you call um live filming and also a guy who doesn't have a producer who's a one-man show here um on the nun report so um i know you have strong family values you got five kids you said i have five kids too right um one of the things that you can all we've talked we've covered a lot of stuff i mean we've covered a lot of ground uh, in the last hour and one of the things that you see uh, or that I think that is a big issue is just the the uh, dismantling and some of it's systemic, some of it's, uh, I, I think, intentional of the nuclear family and, and, you know, having the mother and father in the household and raising your children and communicating with them and doing things with them and that sort of thing. And that's been not only has it become less common, it's it's almost become a bad thing where they're trying to disrupt the nuclear family and, and change the nuclear family. And that's changed in turn society. And and we brought up Marxism earlier in the show, and this is, this is a path and a, a, um, you know, rules for radicals. I mean, that's a great, you know, Saul Alinsky too. That's another great reference um, that people should look up is uh, this intentional destruction of the family with the goal of state dominance. And um, I think that's a huge part of what's going on. Uh, our lack of accountability, our, our lack of consequences uh, for kids and for criminals and for uh, society in general. It's, it's 
it, it's becoming very chaotic, right? Yeah, and the uh, it's a it's a tactic of the left. You're right to bring up Saul Alinsky. Uh, his most famous book is that Rules for Radicals, but it was that's just one uh, thing that he wrote. He was yeah. uh, he was a Marxist. Uh, there was an, and didn't make any bones about it, um, and he wanted to see that the United States brought to a point of chaos where uh, where the government could expand its control. And it's about control, ultimately, control over people. Uh, there, there is a similar uh, sort of one of Alinsky's uh, allies, or, or two of them, were a husband and wife a set of professors out of UC Berkeley <clears throat> called Cloward and Piven. And the Cloward-Piven strategy was a, an American leftist strategy of overwhelming government institutions and cultural social institutions overwhelming them with chaos and basically disabling them so that the left could expand government government is the solution to problems that government caused and uh, it's really it, it's just really it's really upsetting and, and kind of disturbing to watch Alinsky's ideas and the cloward piven strategies at work in Olympia and in DC. And there's no doubt that this is what these people like the current governor Inslee, the current uh, attorney general here in Washington, Ferguson, and uh, the current speaker of the house, Lori Jenkins in Olympia, uh, all follow these, these concepts. And, and again, some of them don't even know it. I genuinely believe that Jay Inslee does not understand the policy. Useful idiots. Uh, but some do. And I think Ferguson may be one who understands it more. And I think the speaker Jenkins is one who understands it more. But they want the control. They want the power. And they are in politics to accumulate power and control. And I mean, I'm in politics to disrupt government power and yeah. control, uh, at least trim it back to essential functions. I mean, I'm not an anarchist. I know you aren't either. We don't want government to go away completely, but we want to tame it. We want government to provide basic services to people in a good way, in a, in a way that encourages people to find their best and highest life and, uh, and you know, their best job, their best business, their best family, uh, and and really leave it to people to decide what's best for them, not tell them how to live. And uh, but but you see these people in politics who absolutely want to tell you how to live. I mean, yeah. our state of health is a, a joke and, and it, it, it's internally contradicting. But the common theme in our state's Department of Health is telling people how they should live, telling people what they should do, what they should put in their bodies, what yeah. they should put in their bodies. And that is wrong on every level. But it's indicative of what people like Ferguson and Inslee and their sort support. It's the control. It's the power. Yeah. Oh, you hit a you hit on a, a real nerve there, and that's you know when you look at um, law enforcement and you know uh, the, the ferry system. For instance, I'm a merchant mariner, by the way. I you, you mentioned fishing in the show. I, I spent many years fishing in the Bering Sea um, and and ran boats up there. So it, it's uh, w when you. When you look at what they're doing down here, because you brought up the man, I relate it to the vaccine thing. You know, they will hire people now who aren't vaccinated for these positions, but they won't hire back the ones that they fired because they weren't. It's nothing. A joke. 
it, that is control. That that's they were pissed off because these people didn't do what they wanted them to do, and now they're being punished. And you know you won't be allowed back. Meanwhile, we don't have enough police officers. We don't have enough merchant mariners to run the ferry fleet. We don't have enough first responders, nurses, doctors, or anything. But the state won't allow these people to be hired back. Dude, it's insane. I, I, um, we could we could go on for that. We could do a whole other show. In fact, that is a completely other show. Is there evil? Yeah, there is evil. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but evil is seductive. I mean, evil doesn't show itself as evil. Evil, and that's the, the trouble with virtue signaling as public policy. You know, evil pretends to be compassionate. Evil pretends to care, uh, but seduces people into doing self-destructive things. And, you know, the people who are punished by the current governor's vindictive actions toward the Washington ferry system and its employees, the ultimate people who are being punished aren't the merchant mariners. They aren't the the, the guys working and gals working the boats. They're us. They're all yeah. of us who want to use the ferry system. That's right. who's that's who Inslee's punished with in, with his vindictiveness. And the idea that he and his transportation minions see the trouble afoot with the ferry system, see the boats that are running a, a aground on their yeah. way into the dock. And have the shameless gall to say that this is means we need to have electric ferry boats. We need to buy new boats. It's preposterous. The reason those boats are running aground is they're understaffed. They're short staffed because of the governor's vindictive nastiness toward the ferry system. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just, it's plain for everyone to see it. And, and, I think that's a reason that the current governor isn't running again. That the reason yeah. that the governor's position is open next year at the next election is I think even his advisors realize that he has become a, you know, the the emperor with no clothes. I mean, I think people yeah. are seeing through this stuff and they're terrified. The left is terrified of that. But this gets back to what we can do. If we as common sense people as conservatives can be a little more disciplined, can can be better organized. I think this is an opportunity for us to let's continue the ferry metaphor to right the ship. I mean, the yeah. ship state in Washington has run aground. We're going to have yeah. to pull off the sandbar and we're going to have to get it back into port the right way. And we have the ability to do that. Like I said, I, I think we're experiencing some more technical difficulties here with our connection. Let's see if it pops back in. Fortunately, if you oh, he's gone. There he's out. Hey, that was uh, that was uh, Representative Jim Walsh here in Washington State. I uh, I don't know if we're going to get him back or not. He still has a link. He might pop back in. But um, one of the things I want to talk about is and and he was talking about uh, you know the the things we have in Washington State with the uh, with the ferry system and the first responders and the police departments um, that. They, they, they fired all these people for not getting vaccinated and they'll hire new people. Um, and there's Jim, Jim's coming back in. So there he is. We're going to bring him back in and, uh, there we go. Now we're back. And, um, so I was just explaining to the people that, uh, 
the technical difficulties, first of all, but then the, the insanity that we were talking about of not bringing people back in that are that are putting stresses on systems in this state that don't need to be there. It's completely unnecessary. And the the vindictiveness and the arrogance and the, uh, um, I mean, man, during COVID, when every time he got behind that microphone wearing that friggin' mask and sat there with a smug, smug little attitude, um, completely, it, oh, it's all about the science, us Washingtonians, if we just stick together and hunker down. And, oh, dude, man, it was, it was grating. Um, but anyway, <laughs> moving on, one of the things uh, I, I tell people is, man, get involved and, and get, we were talking about the ground game. We're talking about, you know, 2024 and, and shifting this state and this country back to a, a more of a common sense, sane level. I, I think it's gone so far left that even moderate and left of center people are starting to go, whoa, okay, this is this is getting, and even people who are in the middle, um, Elon Musk, um, I've seen, as far as, you know, us, you know, local uh, people like Jason Rance, I've seen him move further to the conservative side over the last couple of years. And I think it's because the left has just become so radicalized in what they're doing. Um, so how can people get involved and on the, on the, I always say, well, you know, school boards, uh, county councils, um, you know, there's, you don't even have to have kids in school to run for school board. It's all of our, it's our communities. Um, and if people aren't public speakers, uh, this is what I do. I don't make money doing this, but I figure I can get word out to people. And this is my contribution uh, on top of some of the financial contributions I make. Um, but someone could just give five bucks to a campaign. It all helps, right? What are some ways that you see people can help and get involved? Well, I mean, you can make grassroots contributions and those are, you know, technology has helped that. Uh, you know, it's easy to contribute five or 20 bucks or whatever you can afford online to candidates you like, to parties you support. Um, and, and that is a game changer. That has enabled more populist uh, uh, politicians political people to, to go places, to win elections based on many small contributions rather than the usual handful of big contributions from lobby world or other, you know, those corporations the left always talks about. So that is a, I think that does balance the playing field in politics, especially for local races better. Um, but you don't have to get, you don't have to run for office to help the political process. Um, in our state, the, the parties are built around the concept of the precinct committee officer, PCO. That is an elected position, uh, but it's a local elected position. You, you are elected by your precinct, uh, which is usually a few hundred people, maybe a thousand or twelve hundred. But precincts tend to be neighborhood. They're meant to be neighborhood building blocks in any political structure. Mm -hmm. Many PCO positions are unfilled either Democrat or Republican or Green or Libertarian or whatever you are, the, the many areas, and, and in theory, a precinct has a PCO for every party. But many precincts in the state have no PCO at all. Wow. Um, county party organizations, so your county Republican or Democrat party, can fill by appointment uh, empty PCO positions. That's a thing that most anybody can do if you have even a little interest in politics in this state. Contact your county party, tell them you want to get involved. And if you live in a precinct where there is no precinct committee officer, 
the county party can appoint you as the PCO okay. of your area. And it is it work? It's not, I mean, it's as much work. It's a volunteer position. There's no pay right. for it, but it, it is an organizing position. And it's the work usually entails knocking on your neighbor's doors and handing them a, a postcard or some information about an upcoming election. And uh, it's a way to get involved locally. Uh, a lot of people do it. They don't even, they're not even into politics that much, but they're into their neighborhoods. And, you know, it's, it's a, yeah. in some cases, it's almost like a social thing to do. It's a reason to talk to your neighbors and, and that's good. I mean, that's what it's meant to be. Uh, talk to your neighbors and then tell them about someone like Dave Reichert or someone like Semi Bird or someone like Raul Garcia, who's running for office and is pretty good. And, you know, so many people just don't follow politics that much. And they're open to being persuaded, a friendly persuasion from a neighbor. That's what works. That's what the system is meant to do. And uh, and we need to do more of that. Uh, you know, people are people. People aren't Democrats. People aren't Republicans. People aren't Libertarians. People are just people. They're living their lives. And sometimes they want to know about politics a little bit, but a lot of times they just don't care and they don't want to know. But they want to be informed. They want to know what's going on. And I think a growing number of people feel like they can't, they don't know what's going on. They don't trust media anymore. They, you know, they don't trust newspapers and, and they're open to being persuaded. I mean, you know, people always ask me, how did you change the 19th district from, from blue to red? And my answer is I didn't change anything. The people in my district are the same people they've always been. Politics changed around them yeah. and they didn't become anything. They are what they've always been which is regular people, common sense people. They just figured out that politics has gone screwy and their old lines and alliances don't exist anymore. And uh, they've stayed true to who they are. Politics has changed. And let's, let's let people know that's okay. That's where we are in this state. Politics has changed and the people just are waking up to it. They're just starting to. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, that's uh, that's a great point. And you you look at uh, it seems like every issue now, every issue is is this big, you know, kind of divisive fight where you know you're either right or left, you're conservative or liberal, and um, and there's so many people uh, that myself included that just feel so disenfranchised and just want some common sense, some sanity, and some some levity to come back to our country and our, and, and our neighborhoods even, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how quickly things have changed. Saul Alinsky wrote that book a long time ago, and it's amazing how long it's taken to come into fruition. Um, but the, the, you know, it's, it's the communist way and that is to play the long game and to, uh, look in far into the future and just chip away at it little by little, whether it's through the kids education, um, all these societal changes that we see going on, dividing people by race, color, uh, finances, sexual orientation, or or anything else. Um, and I guess that's probably not a right thing to say, sexual orientation. That's a bad term now, right? I'm not supposed to say that. Um, <laughs> oh, and, well. Oh, well. Your show, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> it's my show. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, anyway, it, it's fun, man. It, it's, it's, uh, it, it's fun to see I think you're starting to see a changing in the tide. It feels like when I, when I just 
research my news. You say people don't trust their local media. Neither do I. I find what I want to find. I go out and search out information. A lot of that comes from foreign sources even um, so that I could have a well-rounded view of what's going on. Um, and it seems like the water's kind of reached the high mark and, and that it, it might be starting to recede a little bit. Um, do, you, do you get that sense? Well, I sure do. I mean, my first election in 2016, I won by like 500 votes. It was pretty tight. And, and my last reelect in 22, I won by 25,000 votes. So the tide in Southwest Washington is, has turned. It's not even turning. Yeah. Um, and I, but I think that is going to spread around other parts of the state and, and even the, the country. I think you're right. I think this kind of down here in, in, on the Harbor here, we, we call them uh, BMW communists, you know, these sort of upper middle-class leftists who think they know better, uh, you know, I think their high point has peaked, and and I, and I think people are just fed up with, you know, they'll put up with that kind of arrogance and that vindictiveness and that airs of superiority, if things are working. I mean, if crime is down, if it's if the business environment is okay, they'll put up with that kind of stuff. But the business environment isn't great right now in this state. I mean, yeah. we've been blessed for a hundred years with you know. I mean, at first it was uh, Warehouser, and then it was Boeing, and then it was Microsoft, and then it was Amazon. We've had these economic engines that have made our state prosperous. You know, what's next? Where's the next Amazon? The next Amazon is in Texas or Florida. It's not here. And Boeing is, you know, literally moving to South Carolina piece by piece. Mm -hmm. We're chasing away the engines that have driven our prosperity and I think people are seeing that. They're getting it. And all this sanctimonious virtue signaling can't hide the fact we're screwing up the goose that has laid the golden eggs for Washington. And I think people are waking up to that. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to how things are going to be in the next uh, next few years here. I think it's going to be we're going to right the ship. I really believe that. Yeah, well, that, that's good. And, and on that note, I mean, I, I, I try to say that all the time, too, because we have, I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom, and we can complain about this and that and, and you know, uh, whatnot. But but I, there is a positive into it. And I, um, Dan Bongino always says he's long on America. And, and I agree. I am long on America, too. And I think the ideals that the, 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 the core values of this country are still there. It just needs to be awakened a little bit. It, is awakening a little bit there is hope there is a future the pendulum swings back and forth in this country it, it always has and and i think that it's getting ready to swing back i look forward to uh finishing uh, my last years on this earth on a positive note with a nice conservative uh <laughs> government and and the freedoms that i was born with um anyway uh hey thanks so much for coming on the show uh I know you're super busy. It took a couple of weeks to put this together. And uh, and I just want to thank you for your time. No, of course, and it's good. I'm glad you're doing this. And, and I mean, this is the future of media. I mean, this is how people are going to get informed, shows like this, what you're doing. So thank you for doing it. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, um, we'll, we'll see you soon. And uh, um, maybe at another event. Who knows? Hopefully on a beautiful lake like we did last week. Um, really anyway, nice. hey. Yep. Hey, thanks, everybody. Folks, Representative Jim Walsh uh, for Washington State uh, Republican Cherry is running for that. He's going to keep both jobs. He's going to uh, be a representative here in Washington as well as the Republican chair. I think that's a good thing. You can find out more about his background 
uh, qualifications and platform on on Twitter at Jim Walsh LD19. He's also on uh, Facebook and Twitter, or excuse me, Facebook. You just search Jim Walsh, you'll find him. And uh, and then the uh, I had his uh, site there for fundraising flashing across the screen for most of the show, and I hope you got that. Anyway, hey, uh, thanks a lot for tuning into the Memory Report. If you've just been listening on the radio or one of the podcast channels, uh, I really appreciate that. But please go to rumble.com slash the Nun Report and check that out because that's where you find all the video and you can see um, Jim live and in person um, on right on your right on your screen or your cell phone. Uh, I'm on all the socials at the Nun Report except for TikTok because I don't do that commie BS. And I'm on Twitter at Nun Report only. Anyway, hey, thanks again for watching. And as always, until next time, may the odds be ever in your favor. Cheers.